I hope that um, I hope that people understand how awful certain people were to the family, and I hope people have some empathy for the family, and um, I I hope I don't want to overuse a, a word, you know, the word closure. I'm a Christian. I believe that Teresa Hallbach right now is bathed in God's love, and they'll see her eventually. But I didn't want her memory besmirched because people people write things like she's in South America on the beach right now while Cleveland while Stephen Avery rots in prison. Are you serious? Like how sick do you have to be to write that? This is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. I'm Jason Blair. That's Sean Reich, the documentary director and producer and former journalist who's mostly known for his films that document wrongful convictions and unjust sentencing, including three situations where people whose stories he told were released from prison. Sean's work often explores the intersection between media, journalism, and the criminal justice system. Sean has been a frequent guest on television shows and podcasts over the last few weeks because of his directing of the recent film, Convicting a Murderer, a rebuttal to Netflix documentary, Making a Murderer. But there's much more to Sean as a man, as a father, as a journalist, and a documentarian. Sean was born in 1965 in Independence, Missouri, and he was adopted by his parents who raised him in Cleveland, Ohio. In 1986, at the age of 21, Sean began a year-long search for his biological family, eventually locating his birth mother in South Boston, a sleepy tobacco town in Virginia just outside the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. His birth father was in the state capital, Richmond. The search for those relationships became an unfinished documentary being born. In 2007, Sean took a position as a writer at an Ohio trade journal, and two years later, he created a local crime television program on a CBS affiliate that was called The Warrant Union. That show, its name eventually changed, became Crime Stoppers Case Files, and it moved to WKTC, the Cleveland NBC affiliate. This eventually had another name change and became Crime Stoppers and expanded across the country into an Emmy award-winning series of shows that air across the nation. During his work on Crime Stoppers, a Chicago attorney approached Sean with a story that would have been hard to make up. The attorney told Sean about the wrongful conviction of a Chicago man named Alistory Simon. This story led to Sean's first film, a Murder in the Park, a critically acclaimed documentary that explores the much-debated conviction of Simon, a Chicago man who spent 15 years in prison for a double homicide that it appears he didn't commit. The story is convoluted. In 1983, another man, Anthony Porter, had been convicted and sentenced to death in the August 1982 murders of Marilyn Green and her fiancée, Jerry Hillard, two teenagers who were shot and killed near a swimming pool in Chicago's South Side. 
Porter was convicted and sentenced to death in 1983. After serving 17 years on death row, students and professors from Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University uncovered new evidence as a part of their school's innocence project that led to Porter's release. The students also thought they had identified the real killer, Simon, who was later found guilty and sentenced to more than 37 years in prison for the killings. But Sean's work uncovered how in attempting to free an innocent man, people at the Medill Innocence Project created a fake video of someone saying that they knew Simon committed the murders, which led to a false confession and his conviction. It was not until a murder in the park that the Cook County, Illinois District Attorney's Office reopened the investigation. Eventually, Simon's conviction was also vacated. Sean is the co-founder of True Blue Crime Network, which is making a show called Takedown with Chris Hansen, where Chris, a former NBC reporter and the host of To Catch a Predator, pursue and catch individuals sexually preying on teenagers and children. Sean is also no stranger to controversy. He was the producer of American Gospel, Christ Alone, a documentary that explored the core question of Christianity, what is the gospel through the distorted lens of American values. American Gospel, Christ Alone, tackles, among other things, the word of faith movement, the prosperity gospel, which started in the 1960s by a television evangelist who, and other preachers like Kenneth Hagin. And it's embraced by new people like Joel Alstein. But Sean has taken on the topic now in his latest documentary that is perhaps more controversial than the gospel and money. In 2015, Netflix began releasing a 20-episode documentary called Making a Murderer. It lasted for nearly three years and told the story of Stephen Avery, a man from Manitowoc County, Wisconsin, who served 18 years in prison after a wrongful conviction for sexual assault and the attempted murder of a woman that incurred in 1985. He was eventually cleared and released, only to later be charged and convicted of the murder of 25-year-old Teresa Halbach, who disappeared on Halloween 2005. Halbach was a photographer for the Auto Trader magazine, and she was found dead in a burn pit on the Avery family's property. Making a Murderer also won several awards, including four Primetime Emmy Awards, and was compared to the HBO series The Jinx and the podcast Serial. The film questioned the second conviction and generated controversy and led to a nationwide call for a pardon and release of Avery. But Sean's latest project, this documentary, this rebuttal of Making a Murderer, called Convicting a Murderer, which makes the case that the Netflix hit attempted to portray Avery as an innocent man and overlooked many key elements of the crimes, ignored facts that made it look like evidence was fabricated. Today, we're going to talk about the difficult road to bringing Convicting a Murderer to the screen. The resistance that Sean and his partners face from big distribution companies and talent agents because of the topic and its opposing views to the Netflix hit. We're also going to talk about how convicting murder got picked up almost accidentally by the Daily Wire, how Sean's autism may have been his superpower in getting this documentary created. We will also talk about the challenge that documentary makers 
who pursue unpopular theories and themes, especially those that run against the interests of their corporate partners, run into these days. Examples abound from Vice dropping a documentary because of its relationship with the government of Saudi Arabia, or The Dissident, a 2020 documentary that won awards but struggled to find a home due to similar issues. We're going to talk about all this and more today with Sean. Sean, I really wanted to thank you for for joining me today. Um, I wanted to just, you know, before I before I get started, just say that. You know, I hadn't made the connection that you were the documentarian who um, who uh, produced uh, a murder in the park, which was you know this wonderful documentary. It was one of my first real experiences, I think, on film, really understanding the difficulties uh, for people who are wrongfully convicted. And it's a complicated tale, and I found it very. You know, it was very hard to tell. Yeah, yeah. I took it as a challenge, and you know, we had a lot of mind maps and all that stuff. You know, all you you needed like at the film festival, and we didn't have all those graphics. You needed a notebook when you watched it. (laughs) Who's this? Who's this again? Throw up a whiteboard. Who is this? Get some string and whiteboard and pictures and be yeah. like Carrie Matheson and Homeland. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was a it was a powerful documentary. So I was super excited to hear that you were looking into the you know, into the Stephen Avery case and convicting a murder. Now, admitting my own bias, I am one of those people who watch Netflix making of a murder and I walked out convinced that he was guilty. Me too. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. It, 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 even though I think for a lot of people, it made him made them think about the possibility of innocence. When I looked at it kind of laid out, um, laid out the case, but I also recognize that many people, you know, are concerned about the way that the case was handled and I thought it was really interesting, you know, when I saw the initial promos, I heard you on another podcast, and I it, I thought it was very interesting to me, that idea from, like, the perspective of someone who's worked in journalism, that what gets left out can really distort the story. So I really appreciate the fact that you're doing this and, and the work that you've done. Thank you. Yeah. I am... Um, I was just wondering, just sort of off the the top of my head, what led you to become involved in the, the Stephen Avery case and led you down the road to convicting a murder? How did you get interested in it or even think that, think that it was something uh, that you'd pursue? The state investigator, Tom Fossbender, and uh, the prosecutor, Ken Kratz, saw a murder in the park. And they said, and I didn't know this, they said, you're the first person to ever expose the quote unquote innocence industry. Hmm. And um, they said, we trust you with our story. And um, I said, well, okay, but I consider myself a journalist. So if you did anything wrong, it's going to come to light. They said, we have nothing to hide. And uh, so we we made a deal. Oh, wow. I I was waiting for someone else to do it. Catherine Schultz of The New Yorker wrote a piece tearing, making a murder apart just weeks after it came out. 
Yeah, I Brian remember Wendicke, that. Yeah, Brian Wendicke did something in Salon, like the emotional manipulation of making a murderer, you know, which I totally agreed with. I felt the same. I was angry when I found out I was lied to. So I was like just sitting there with the popcorn waiting for someone to make this. And no one did. That's how I ended up doing it. And so in reality, it was them seeing your prior work, which I, I mean, your prior work also involved, you know, because it's such a complicated case, but it starts with a wrongful conviction. That guy gets out and then it lands because of the folks that got that guy out. It turns into another wrongful conviction. So yeah. that's the part that, that captured them that you were will that in murder in a park you were willing to explore both sides of it yeah we were willing to take on the cabal in chicago the 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 it, there's a there's kind of a partnership between professors journalists and attorneys and it starts with the professors doing investigation continues with the journalists promoting the investigation, the results of the investigation, and ends with the attorneys making an awful lot of money and kicking it back to the others in the form of donations to the school or just plain referral fees or whatever is ethical and legal. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's a money-making industry. Yeah. Is that part of the reason you think at so many journalism schools across the country, we've seen uh, the, them embracing you know, innocence project type reporting projects. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a marketing ploy. It's the same as them having CSI classes. Right. You know, especially at matchbook schools, not at, at, not at prestigious universities like Northwestern, which is an excellent university uh, and an excellent J school. But yeah, I, I, uh, I think it's, I think the it's a, you know, the marketing element gets in and people watch CSI and think, Oh, I want to do that. And they, create a program for it. The police couldn't care less if you went through that program and the FBI couldn't care less if you went through that program. It's just right. So <laughs> it won't. You got to start at the bottom and learn the right way. So they, they couldn't care less. It's pure, pure marketing and fantasy uh, for the, for the, you know, the, the, the quote unquote student. Yeah. And it kind of captures like some of the real challenges that journalism, journalism schools are facing relevance right and well news deserts this is this is crazy right now the market's driving this and guess what everybody picked a side and when they picked a side they left the truth in many cases unreported are you thinking like cnn Um, uh, fox and nbc i guess maybe fox and fox and uh fox and uh you know msnbc are the two extremes you know, well, no, Fox isn't as extreme as some of these little ones, but you know, Fox is Fox went really right, and uh, MSNBC went, you know, was Oberlin, Oberman and Maddow are really left, you know, lip quivering, incredulous liberals and uh, pearl clutching Republicans on Fox, and and, and uh, it, that's how they, that's in service to their shareholders, you know, it worked. Um, they, they, they ebb and flow, uh, based on who's in charge when Donald Trump was in charge, uh, Rachel Maddow blew the charts open Mm. when, uh, Bill Clinton was president, Rush Limbaugh tripled his audience. Um, it's always like the pissed off people who need somewhere to vent three hours a day. And, uh, so they, they run to, to these things to, to find someone who thinks like they do. How do you think it got connected to the to the to the idea of innocence or the innocence work? 
I don't think this is that political, to be honest. I, mm. You know, so there's two camps with making a murderer. Well, there's two, there are two defined camps, truthers and guilters. Truthers are like, we want the truth. Stephen's innocent. Guilters are like, he's clearly guilty. And there are left-wing and right-wing truthers and left-wing and white, right-wing guilters. That's why it's... Mm. I'm really fortunate that, they, that the Daily Wire took on this project because it's not political. It's a cultural and ethical project. And uh, especially like, you know, really it, it ends, episode 10's with, 10 ends with a call to establish a set of voluntary standards for factual filmmakers. Mm. We need to tell people who funded the film. Uh, we need to tell people if we paid subjects, which I'm for paying subjects, if we're going to make money off of them. Some people are not. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to tell people if it's an advocacy piece. It's okay to make an advocacy piece, but be honest about it. These filmmakers who made Making a Murderer made an advocacy piece, and they acted like they were flies on the wall. Like, hey, man, we just told it like it was, but we can prove that they did not. It's yeah. very demonstrable that they did not do that. And it, it reminds me of in journalism, you know, that idea that I can pick up the newspaper. Occasionally I do pick up the dead tree and see that these are the opinion columns. This is the news analysis. This is the straight news. But when I'm looking at a documentary, I have no idea whether the person's coming from a point of view and often until I get oh. far into it. I have a good friend named Deborah Dickerson, and she wrote The End of Blackness. And is a you know a pundit I guess she's just a fascinating human being, and um, I told her I said she 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 was going through something and personally and I told her to watch a movie called Divorce Incorporated. It was like an unbelievable oh yeah movie I've seen it. Yeah. I saw I think on Netflix uh, I think it was Netflix or Amazon but it was Divorce Incorporated and I could not believe that couples who figured out their divorce and went to court. The judge would say, no, you have to have lawyers. And the lawyers in the court would drain them dry. And there was no money to split. And she said, be careful, Sean. That was paid for by a men's rights group. A really? Rights group. And I was like, God, they should have disclosed that. Wow. It's still a moving, excellent documentary. But I needed to know that it was paid for by that organization. And that's who kind of hit me to, to the fact that that there are organizations and lobbies that, that uh, fund films. You know, people all the time say Kratz paid for this documentary or Wisconsin law enforcement paid for this doc. Who, who funded this film? Well, it's all in the executive producer credits. They're car dealers, doctors, uh, investment bankers. They're all from Cleveland. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's not, there's no, there's no conspiracy there. It's not going to hold up. It's just a bunch of people who said, yeah, we'll, we'll fund this. We'll give it a shot. I have a pretty good track record of returning money to investors. So, well, I've, I've never failed to. So um, that's why I funded the film. But anyway, going down a rabbit hole here. <laughs> I like rabbit holes. The, um, but I, I was wondering, like, when you, you know, for like, you know, from my perspective, you know, like I mentioned, when I watched Making of a Murderer, which walks through Stephen Avery's, you know, wrongful conviction, then his conviction for the murder of Teresa Halbach, I learned a lot about the Avery case. And I, you know, I think maybe coming from the perspective of somebody who worked in journalism and who covered crime, I don't have this like mythical belief that there's this perfect kind of investigation where like everybody does everything right. And we're, you know, that 
you know, that we are like 110% beyond reasonable doubt to, to reasonably convict someone. So, so maybe I walk into it and I'm desensitized to some of the realities. And I, I found that a lot of my friends saw what I would consider sort of the realities of an investigation and reacted as if he must be innocent. And they said, yeah, it's implicit though, isn't it? Yeah. When you watch a documentary, isn't it? Didn't it used to be implicit that you're, you're getting something straight and it's just not anymore. And yeah. It worries me to death because doc, when I started documentary filmmakers were beggars. We were the, the bottom of the totem pole. We were, we would get grants and we were lucky if something got on PBS and they gave us $15,000. Now we get millions. I, I remember every documentary filmmaker I knew when I was in New York was definitely poor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was buying them coffee and sandwiches, not to be uh, And, not, and now we make millions of dollars. I've done it multiple times. And it's a lot of it's because of making a murderer. Net, making a murderer made Netflix stock price go up 8%. They gained 5 million subs. You know, in a 30-day period, I believe, or 90 in 30 period. days, five million was subscribers. Not, I, 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 wow. I'm sorry, I think it was 90 days, but that's okay. a lot of subs. Yeah, that's 50 it, million bucks, and a lot of them stuck. You know, I don't know what their churn rate is, but a lot of them stuck. So, um, and it probably still subscribers today. You know, eight or nine years later, so eight years later, so you know, there's just an awful lot of stake here, and yeah. uh, we 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 can't screw up what we just got. And we're going to by doing these advocacy pieces and not disclosing that they're advocacy pieces. Because eventually you think there'll be a backlash. I th- eventually people are going to say this is bullshit. The, the, mo- the most important thing when it, with a scripted film is to suspend disbelief. That's why they love writing based in part on true events. But you can write about anything, okay? Right. And th- that helps people suspend disbelief. Well, with a documentary, it's implied that you're going to suspend disbelief that you, because you're, you're, you're getting something that they claim is factual. And right. if you betray that trust, which this documentary certainly did, and it's demonstrable, and we prove it in our series, what future do we have? We're going to screw up the, the gift that we were just handed of relevance and financial security and everything. I'm, I'm, I'm worried about the documentary film market. What, really from, when you first watched Making a Murder, what were your like before you before you read anything else about it? What were your thoughts and feelings? And then how did that evolve over time? And then I, once you did convicting a murder, I I said, uh, "Wow, they framed this guy, and this thing is really hot, and I think it's going to help my movie." And it certainly helped the Murder in the Park. Because when it was over, people, all these sites would create these lists. They still craving more making a murder. Here are 10 films to watch. And I mean, uh, a murder, yeah, making a murder. And, you know, it would be The Jinx and The Thin Blue Line and, you know, West Memphis, whatever, you know. And then Murder in Park would be on a lot of those lists. So all of a sudden our EST money, our iTunes and Amazon was going through the roof. So those filmmakers and Netflix made me money. And Netflix licensed a murder in the park, too. What's EST? That's the money. Uh, for electronic you. sell-through. That's iTunes okay. and Amazon. Okay. So okay. That, that went through the roof. Sorry to use shop talk. Oh, no worries. But uh, so, so we made money on making a murder. But I, as a filmmaker, I was like, you know, why didn't I hear any more about this blood vial? That was a really big deal to me. Right. And um, 
like I was like, why didn't they close that loop? And come to find out when I read the, the, the long form piece in The New Yorker by Katherine Schultz, it's like, well, because there was nothing to it. And the filmmakers knew there was nothing to it. It's like, why did you waste an hour of my life with an episode on that blood vial? What was the truth about the blood vial? uh, The the hole was made in the blood vial by putting the blood into it. There was a nurse ready to testify, and the blood would have had, the planted blood would have had the preservative that's in the vial, which is called EDTA. Yeah, I remember that from the OJ trial. Yeah, and they tested it, and it did not have uh, uh, EDTA, so it couldn't have been from that vial. And a nurse was from LabCorp was ready to testify, and the defense never even brought it up because they didn't want that nurse to testify. They wanted it to fester in jurors' heads. So, so that's something that was known at the trial that they mm-hmm. wanted to lay out there, but they didn't. They deliberately didn't want to close the loop. Right. And, and is then, that for is that Jason? Is that for brevity? Probably not. Yeah, it's it's for advocacy. Right. And the, and so the in your mind the through the work you've done, that's like an example of something that you think the folks in who who developed Making of a Murder walked out of that documentary knowing those facts that they left out? My theory, and this is just my allegation, my theory is that they spent their life savings making this thing and they had to sell it. They could have sold it as is, telling the truth. It would have still been fascinating. But they... We have the jail calls. Stephen, we're, we're going to go back. And that's to work. between the producers. The filmmakers and, and Stephen Avery. We're, we're, going to go back, we're going to go back to work on your film. We hope this helps you. You know, we believe you. This was not objective. We have the receipts. It was not objective. Uh, and, you know, the funny thing is the truthers, the people who are attacking me on Twitter right now, on X right now, forgive me. Um, I call it tweet X. Tweet X, yeah. (laughs) So the people who are attacking me right now, like we all know, we've researched this, we all know the movie, we don't care about the movie, we have 80 new reasons that Stephen was framed. It's like, I'm sorry, this is an indictment in the film of the series. It really is. And and I'm not going to get into too many of their 80 new things. Some are really cockamamie, some are whatever. You know, there's always, Andy Hale, my partner, in a murder in the park and the, the attorney who uh, one of the attorneys who helped tell story, Simon, he said, um, there's there, you can go to any criminal case. There are always problems with the paperwork. There's always something not time stamped. There's always something where somebody just made a mental error. You can always find problems in the paperwork. It doesn't make someone innocent. It's just like but, any other work. Sure. Sure. I, I, you know how many times a writer writes a story and I, I write them back and I say, I didn't, you know, I didn't graduate from Cleveland state. I just attended it or whatever. This is, you know, there's just all these little things you have to correct. Oh, yeah. A lot of times there's a revision to a story. And uh, so, like, yeah, it's, they're just, you're right. It's every every field. But these these truthers find these errors and it validates their, it validates their position to them. That they're a very self-congratulatory echo chamber, you know. Yeah. You know, they'll write, like, if, I, if I'm busy doing a, a press tour all day, and I chime in at nine o'clock. I see the crickets from Sean Reck. Clearly, clearly, he doesn't have any answers. It's like they're just <laughs> high-fiving each other. And it's like, right. Maybe I was doing something. Yeah, see? you just created your own reality there. 
Yeah, well, and that's also like a part of it too. A lot of it is creating your own reality and wanting to live in that bubble and not. And I mean, I think that's probably a part of it, right? People get so invested in cases, whether it's OJ or it's Adnan Saeed or it's uh, Stephen Avery's case. I think there's this like escalation of commitment thing. The more you sort of, it's a heuristic the more you invest in something, the harder it is to realize that it's a bad idea. We see it in relationships, we see it in jobs, but I think it also happens when something is powerful and we know, you know, film is powerful. Something as powerful as film becomes a part of our life. It's hard to admit like, oh, wow, like maybe I was duped or maybe I didn't have all the information. And, and later in the series, you're going to hear people admit that. And it's fascinating who the people are. It's really fascinating who they are. I, I can't give away a spoiler. Daily Wire will kill me. But, you know, it's a, you're going to see these episodes. Candace redesigned these episodes in a way that they just, it just, it's just one big crescendo. They start with just kind of a retelling. And there's more information in every one. And it's more shocking every episode. And it, it ends, you know, with a boom, believe me. And, you know, there are people who say we were duped and they are very prominent people from the Avery side. Wow. It's a pretty big deal. Wow. So for you, after you, you know, read the New Yorker piece and were sitting there, was there a moment for you where you were like, huh, like maybe not just the film itself, but huh? This guy might be guilty, <laughs> or was there? I, I know, said, boy, I, I said I would have appreciated knowing this information since I invested ten hours of my life into this. Right. And right. Um, I got a little angry, and I took out the popcorn and said, "Mark Smerling, or you know, did the jinx, or somebody is going to do a hit piece on this, and it's going to be thoroughly entertaining watching this get tor- torn to shreds because a lot of people aren't readers." They didn't see Catherine Schultz's article. So I just sat around for two years. Nobody did it. And now I know why, because this was so hard to sell, because nobody wants to piss off Netflix. Yeah. Talk to me about that part, the difficulty Um, of selling it. So my agents in New York, who co-produce with Netflix all the time, big projects, really good projects, they were like, we don't even want to talk about this movie. Really? Your own agents? Yes. Wow. Yeah. They, I got a Dear John letter from an intern saying, you know, we're not interested after they told me I was a permanent client. From your own agent, they said, pound sand on this yep. project. Wow. Yep. So then I go to my aggregator in New York, and an aggregator is the person who puts it on iTunes and Amazon. Mm-hmm. And he says, I'm Netflix's lab. I can't, I can't do it. Really? I was just going to throw it on iTunes and Amazon. Yeah. Like, do you think do these folks like get this message or no. they're in tuning nope. the message? No, I don't think Netflix told anybody to not buy it. I think this is self-preservation. Yeah. And then we had all these networks where someone would watch the screeners and they'd be like, oh God, this is great. And that gets to the buyer. And you know, the Hollywood ecosystem. And the also, buyer's the executive that makes the decision. Yes, the buyer's executive makes the decision and has to bring it before kind of a quorum or you know a group and get a quorum and um that person may end up working for netflix one day or want to because there's a lot of 
uh, leapfrogging and puddle mm. jumping in that in that business. And they didn't want to ruin their chances to work at Netflix. So they just didn't want to be the one. Yeah, this is great. I, I went to this top documentary Hollywood agent. It was surreal. He has me meet him at this former bathhouse converted into incredibly exclusive L.A. private club. Mm-hmm. They, I'll just call it the Did he bring you in the back door to hide you? Or? No, no, he brought me in the front door. And the Netflix documentary boss was there, too. Um, oh, wow. That Lisa was there. And I saw Ted Sarandos, too. But it, this agent brings me in. and That's why it was so surreal. And I'm talking to him, and he's just looking at his phone. He's doing. He did this meeting because a friend of ours, a mutual friend, asked him to have the meeting. So, you know, he's not terribly interested. We, we do six, seven, eight projects at a time. So I'm showing him our whole slate. Right. And I saved the best one for last. I saved convicting for last. And I go, this one proves that making a murder was BS. And he looked up from his phone and he looked at me and he said, dude, I have to work in this town. Oh, wow. And that's when I realized, oh, man, I'm screwed. Wow. And, and truthers will say, oh, nobody wanted to buy your piece of crap. No, nobody wanted to not. Nobody wanted to get in Netflix's bad graces. I don't think they ordered anybody to not buy it. I don't think, I don't even think they had nefarious intent. Um, in doing it, Netflix itself. I really yeah. don't. I just think they were, you know, serving their algorithm that said we need bingeable long form crime and they use narrative filmmaking techniques to tell the news and you, can, you cannot do that. Sorry. Well, I have a I have a question about that, right? Because the news is messy, right? It's not the hero's journey, or it's not, you know, you know, it's not. It's definitely it's not, not Anakin becoming Darth Vader, right? Yeah, it's not save the cat, and you know, in the industry, because this is something that I don't don't really entirely understand. So, you as the person who's the filmmaker in a documentary, you report the story, you record the story, you think about how to tell the story, you pitch it, right, to them. How, well, how, no, how, how much due diligence did they do in the process? Oh, no, 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 no. I don't. Okay. No, so look, I don't use the normal formula. Okay. We, we do everything on spec. So I have my own investment investors or lenders in our case. Okay. So we do everything on spec because I don't want the notes. I don't want them. Mm. I don't want, and and I also don't want like my guy to get fired, and the new guy to come in and say this sucks. We're not doing it. So we make everything on spec and we auction it off. So you're not taking any money up front. Hell no, because then you're then you're a wage slave. You're then you're you're only you're limited to making like fifteen percent profit on American profit gospel. I made a thousand percent profit. You know I don't want fifteen percent profit. Right. So. Um, I want to be able to hit it over the fences. So um, I, I'll never, co- I mean, I'm, I am doing a co-production deal right now with, with possibly with a, a cable network, but that's just to keep the doors open and, and to create some financial stability. But my passion projects, they're spec. I do them on spec and it's done. It's like, take it or leave it. The, this, this case here with the Daily Wire, they're the first people to get me to take notes, a lot of notes. And that's because, you know, Nobody would buy it. They come in as the heroes, all right? Right. Candace, I had to go down to Nashville and have 14 hours of meetings with Candace Owens. We watched, you know, 11 or 12 hours of this, of the old version. And she's one of the smartest, you can agree or disagree with it. She's one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. At the end, she went to a whiteboard. She goes, here, I'm going to fix this. And it turns mm. out that Linda Schuller, who did most, you know, 
lot of the work, way more work than I did. She's the producer you see on, on camera. Right. Brenda Schuler and I uh, sat there and, and looked at what Brenda, uh, what uh, Candace was saying. And I was like, oh, Brenda's not going to react well to this. And when she was done, uh, Brenda and I said, you're right. You've oh, wow. What did she? Yeah, I get that idea, right? Like when you're working on a long get too close long to project. It. Yes, exactly. You can't see the forest from the trees. And mm -hmm. then, you know, all of these, uh, you know, having a, a, a smart person who's just being introduced it, to it sometimes can be super. Oh, yeah. Super that's why powerful. we focus group everything. Yep. But she, 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 she gave us hundreds of, she, she changed everything. She changed everything. And I was, I was like, oh man, she's making a lot of changes and this is expensive, but you know what? It's, it's a much better series for her changes. You feel grateful. How did you even land on the Daily Wires? You know, Daily Wires is probably most known as sort of like a conservative publication. I know they've moved into video and film. How did you even end up on their doorstep? Did you? So my agent, my new agent, <laughs> my new agent, uh, sent it to somebody he thought worked at Fox nation. And he, and then he said, Hey, send screeners to this person at Fox nation. They're interested. So we sent screeners and they said, episode one dash Fox episode two dash Fox, you know, right. We watermark them. So we know who leaked it. If it mm -hmm. gets, you know, and, uh, and the guy didn't say anything, but he was their filmmaking partner, Dallas Sonia. And, and I didn't, we didn't know we were talking to the Daily Wire. That's, isn't that hilarious? I oh, never, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've been a Daily Wire subscriber since the beginning. I, 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 I buy their razor blades. I, 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 I'm, I'm. They a, have razor blades? Yes. Because, because Harry's <laughs> dropped them over Candace's comments or Ben's comments or something. I, I, I'm a, I've been a Candace supporter since she toured with Charlie Kirk. You know, I'm, I'm. I love the Daily Wire, and people don't realize, like they're not as lockstep. They're they're right, okay, they're right wing, but they every day of Trump's presidency, Ben Shapiro ripped on Trump. Right, right, right. Called good Trump, bad Trump. Yeah, you know, every day he'd say this buffoon with no total lack of decorum. You know, he he would so they're they're not like these shills. They're free thinkers or independent. So. Well, I mean, and to your point, like uh, people like Ben Shapiro and Candace Owen, you know, they they are, you know, they're right wing and we're in a very polarized time. But I, we have this tendency, whether it's on the right or the left, turn people into characters. So, you know, you made that point. It's a boogeyman thing. You said, I don't know how you feel about Candace Owen. I was like, in my head, I was like, I don't know, because I haven't met Candace Owen. <laughs> <laughs> I've met this character I've seen. And I'm telling you, like, like some of the people who interviewed Candace who are friends of mine, they're like, she is not what I thought. And I'm <laughs> like, yeah, because you hear the sound bites. You see her with Kanye wearing a White Lives Matter shirt, but you haven't sat and had a conversation with her. You know, she's very cerebral. She's just she's just deep, man. Yeah. I, I, and Were you worried, though, that those characters would taint whatever story? No. No, I, I mean, I was, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I was very grateful that, that, that we had a deal and that this was going to get out there. But in retrospect now, whoever delivered this story had to be fearless. I'm fearless. I don't care. I'm not famous. I'm, I'm just some fat director from Cleveland, Ohio. But, you know, 
we need to have I'm a phase. have to disagree with you there. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but to have to have a to have a a lightning rod who is Teflon. She couldn't care less what you say about her. Fronting this is absolutely perfect. And well, that's interesting. So it was I, I sort of like adaptive. Like a gift from God. You know, I really feel like this is I, this was like a gift. I, I can relate to it because sometimes I will fight fights and people will say to me, how are you taking that risk or that fill in the blank? And I'll say, look, when, when you've been through what I've been through, <laughs> you mm-hmm. don't really care. What are they going to do? They're, gonna, they're not going to hurt the kids. They're not going to take the cats. I'm pretty good with whatever mm-hmm. criticism they have. So in this weird way, the fact that she's weathered so much criticism, she just doesn't care, almost makes sort of like, pursuing the truth that people don't want to hear a little bit easier. Yeah. They're, they're perfect. They're perfect partners. And I, I didn't, I didn't even realize that but yeah. they're perfect partners. Yeah. And so, and it's almost just by accident that it lands there. It was a fluke or it was whatever uh, divine. I don't know. <laughs> right. From your perspective, do you, do you, are there other people out there who are having similar challenges to the ones you had to bring this to market with good stories? Is this a challenge documentarians are facing? I'll tell you who it's a challenge for. I'm I'm very in tune. This is going to sound weird. Okay. Both of my sons are black men. Okay. I'm very in tune with the challenges facing the black community. And when George Floyd was killed, Hollywood could have empowered young black voice and said, you know what? We're going to give a hundred filmmakers, young filmmakers, 200 grand to tell their stories or to tell the stories they think are important. But what did they do? They didn't do that. They just canceled cop shows. Mm. And it was the most veneer, spineless, cowardly act it's the reason we started the true blue network and i'm not trying to segue to that but it's the reason we started our own streamer was to bring back these shows is that is that one of the things that actually i had not i had not read or heard that it kind of reminds me of the criticism you know like corporations put out statements after george floyd but then it's not really followed by anything or everybody hires a chief diversity officer. And I'm not kidding. Like I was reading this report that said like 40% of those people who were hired as chief diversity officers no longer in their um, positions. Others are saying that they're not empowered to do. No, they're, not. they're definitely Just not. Checking the box. You saw, you can see that in the Abercrombie and Fitch documentary on Netflix. Um, they're not empowered. The, the person looks in the camera and says, I they didn't listen to me. I was a, I was a chess piece. You know, it was I was an ornament, yeah. Um, and and that's how they are. I it's the uh, yeah the Deborah Dickerson. I'll bring her up again. She said the soft bigotry of low expectations, and right. and and uh, you know it's all it's all veneer, Jason. It's all veneer. I remember talking to a math professor up in Boston once, and he said to me, he gave he gave his students like two examples, and one of the examples was this teacher who was like bending over backwards to help his poor minority students um, get their math right to the point where he was almost doing their work for them. And then there was another like brutal teacher who was, 
you know, tough on people and pushing them hard. And he said, he said to his class, who's the asshole? And they all picked the brutal, tough teacher. He said, no, it's the other one who's not letting you learn and not letting you grow and patronizing you. And I think sometimes, and sometimes it's very well-meaning and sometimes it's not, it's platitudes. But I think it's really hard. You know, you mentioned your sons are both black. It's, it's really hard to get genuine progress in the world when so, so many of the people who even support African-Americans or black Americans are, it's hard to tell who's being honest and who's doing lip service. Yeah. Well, when they, when a major cable network cancels a show, that's 51% of their revenue. So they don't look pro cop. That's insanity. And by the way, crime is evergreen. Which it's show was that? high stakes. Pardon me? Which show was that? Uh, you know what? I'm going to say it. It was live PD. A&E. 51% of the revenue, I'm told. And they, they, they cut it out. So Stars brings it back, not Stars, Reels brings it back under a new name. They, the same concept, okay? And they go from like being ranked in the hundreds of cable networks to like top 20 cable network. But then now they have problems selling advertising because it's mm. pro police content. You know what I mean? Mm. So it's just like, but we, you know, True Blue, watch trublu.com is our streamer. We, the, the highlight of it is our new generation of Catch a Predator investigations called Takedown with Chris Hansen. Yeah. That, we formed that. We it's formed nice that. to see Chris back. Oh, he, he's always been doing it. Okay. He never stopped. But these are, these are good. These are incredible episodes. Incredible. And uh, th- these guys are, it's so much worse now. And um, we got 40 episodes up. We put a new one up every week. We charge like less than five bucks. We have 150 movies, a bunch of other shows. It's like a little crime Netflix type thing. And um, True Blue is uh, is kind of like, I did it in response to all these cancellations of shows. It's really interesting, the thing about like the anti-cop sentiment. Um, you know, I... I it's lazy, I was, Jason. It's lazy. Yeah, when I, well, when I was reporting, right? Like when I was reporting in New York, you'd go to these anti-police protests, right? And it was usually like, you know, people like me grew up in middle to middle, upper middle class families, black, white, often, you know, majority white. But when I was in Brownsville or I was in East New York, I was in some bad neighborhood in Queens or Brooklyn or in the Bronx, you'd, you wouldn't find people who were like, I want to get rid of the police. They would say like, I don't want them to kill innocent black men, but I I actually want more presence. Yeah. Yeah. But I want more police. I'm the ones they're supposed to be protecting. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's it's, all fighting. Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting how, you know, our advocacy for things is so. It's all a character. Yeah. It's all a a bumper sticker. Yeah. It's misaligned with people's desires and their actual needs and and i think sometimes like we to your point about a character we turn cops into characters the vast majority of police officers i've ever met want to help people and like i was saying they're willing to die for us i mean they're soldiers yeah just like yes just like soldiers that are and and they and they take such sacrifice the mental health sacrifice they're in an industry where 
you have so many repeat offenders, even people when you're helping, like you have to. It, cha- it changes them. They're, they become jaded human beings. You know, yeah. they, have to, they have to decompress when they retire because they just don't trust anybody. They've seen so much horror. Yeah. You know, it, it, that job takes a toll on you. I know a lot of police officers, it really takes a toll on you. And I wonder whether we just don't honor the people who make those kinds of sacrifices for In my opinion, uh, it's very popular to crap on them. And, um, you know, people call True Blue, they, put, they call our network Copaganda. It's not Copaganda. They're hmm. bad apples. I pointed out a lot of them in White Boy. Uh, which right, that's is, the that's the Detroit. Yeah, the Rick uh, Warshi movie. Rick. <laughs> hey, yeah. watch, it on, watch it on Netflix. Watch it on Netflix. I'll plug it on yeah. Netflix. Yeah, uh, I did. His story is his story is amazing. He's a seventeen year old drug operation. He was 15. Guy, fifteen. Yeah, okay. and, and they they uh, gave him life for a nonviolent uh, nonviolent juvenile offense because he was trying to take down Coleman Young. And let me tell you what happened. They built the FBI built their whole case on Coleman Young, and the FBI agent in charge, his name is Herman Groman. He 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 thought because they just caught Marion Barry and George Bush forty one, right, smoking crack in the apartment. And George Bush forty one was like, uh, I don't want another Marion Barry. So they didn't prosecute Coleman Young. He was the Detroit, Detroit mayor. Mayor, yeah. yeah, iconic Detroit mayor. Right, right. And uh, so all Worshi's work was for nothing. And then he was left in charge, Coleman Young. And then he paid Rick back by doing it. He had, it, his, him, he had his informant left to charge, basically. Yeah, and um, so they 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 nuked him. And uh, White Boy is a is a great story. I know I'm prejudiced because I I'm I'm the director, but. I, Catch it on Netflix. It's it's a fantastic movie. There's also the Matthew McConaughey White Boy Rick movie. That's a that took some liberties with the truth, you know, for the sake of drama and story arc and everything. But ours is very factual, and the New York Times called it the superior telling of the story. And uh, you know, I think that people will enjoy it if they if they go to Netflix and watch it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you know you were making, you know, I I think I think. To me, really smart points, and I think I told you this. I'm I'm fairly a fairly liberal person, <laughs> but you know, one of the things that I tell people is, you know, look at the facts, and the facts are that we do need police. We do need an environment where police aren't incentivized to do bad things, where bad apples can be pulled out. But a world without law enforcement is a lawless world. It's like living in Russia or something worse than that. And I think if we work together, right, through our different lenses on things, I think we could find common ground, but people just aren't interested. And and this brings me back to making of a murderer and convicting a murderer. I think too many people are just not interested in community and finding a common ground and finding solutions together. How do you think we got here? Um, social media. Yeah. yeah. What about, what about social media? Do you think the fact that, uh, it feeds you based on your confirmation bias. So I can follow all people like me. So I can, I mean, like if you, if you watch a video of, a harebrained conspiracy theory 
the algorithm is going to say, oh, he likes those, and it's going to show you 60 more, and you're going to be like, oh, my God, I'm discovering all this stuff. But it's not organic. It's not organic. It's because you watched one mm. that they they threw up as a trial balloon. Yeah. And you watch this, they're like, oh, let's give them more because people tend to watch these whole things three times. <laughs> and, you know, so it's, it's algorithms and it turns people into these zombies, these robots. And they, and, and they want to believe in boogeymen. Every, a bunch of Republicans think, you know, everything is George Soros. It's not. Mm. And a bunch of liberals think everything is like the Koch brothers or, you know, uh, Adelston, or, or the guy in uh, Vegas who owns a casino. Like, yeah, 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 that donor, <laughs> mega donor. They, yeah. they, or Trump is a, a perfect boogeyman. It's not, there, there's nuance and there's, it's not the same. And I don't, I refuse to believe that liberals are evil. I oh, believe I that so. they want what I want. I believe mm-hmm. that they believe in a different path of getting there. And I think that they're, I think they're just somewhat naive or somewhat distracted, you know, and I know that sounds condescending, but I just think that, that if they do a little more research, I'm making a movie now called reactors about internet reactors. There is a phenomenon right now of young black entrepreneurial men turning Republican because they're sick of losing half their paycheck. Mm. Um, Same thing's happening with many Hispanic men as well. Yes. Yeah. Well, Hispanics are, generally anti-abortion so um, more conservative but truly i think some of the economic issues are yeah but i mean and they're also discovering the history of the of the of the the democratic party and um so you know the fact that the kkk was you know a left-wing organization the fact that republicans passed the civil rights act not not democrats um Republican Party was formed. I mean, the, the the Webster's definition is it was formed to end slavery and um, multiple wives. That's that's why the party was formed and uh, polygamy or whatever it's called. Yeah. And I think it's a complicated mix, right? Right, because of the Southern sides. strategy. It's yeah, the strategy yeah. destroyed the Republican Party. Destroyed the Republican right Republican completely. Party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lee Atwater did not help. Jerry Falwell did not help. A number. Right. But one of the things that's kind of interesting in what you're saying is it's often way more nuanced than people realize. Because like when I was growing up and I was in a world where I could have in any particular election voted for a Republican or a Democrat. I think I voted for George H.W. Bush in one of my first elections and then Clinton in the next and then back and forth. And, and we live in a world where you don't, you know, I admire people like uh, Republicans like Rockefeller or Olympia Snow. At the same time, I admire people like Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton. And that world doesn't exist as much for people. I remember this. Uh, I was working for the Boston Globe and their Washington Bureau as an intern and David Shribman was the editor. And he came to my desk one day with like the Wall Street Journal and He's like, I want you to read the Wall Street Journal. I want you to, and I want you to read the opinion column. I want you to read the New York Times every day. I want you to read the Weekly Standard, which was Bill Crystal's conservative magazine. And he said, I want you to read the New Yorker, the New York Republic. And he said, Mother Jones. And he said, my point is, I want you to look at every perspective, even perspectives that you don't agree with, because you will find something 
you will find something in all those perspectives of value and it'll move you closer to the truth. And I thought that was like a really powerful. That was good. That's good advice. Yeah. Uh, here's something crazy. When I watched, uh, was it uh, Devin Archer? When I watched Devin Archer's Senate testimony or House testimony, he was Hunter Biden's partner. And I, I know Devin right. through Chris Hansen. And I watched NBC's coverage and I watched Fox's coverage. It's like it was a different hearing. Yeah, it's it's you're on a boat in the middle of a river looking out. At, it's the same thing, same river, but you're looking out of one side and hills and mountains and one side is streams yeah. and valleys. Yeah, it's it's um, it was bizarre. And I was like, this is the perfect example of what I've been talking about. And I, 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 I pitched this to someone at Gannett 10 years ago. I go, someone needs to go back to pure straight news because PBS isn't pure straight news either because the Republicans keep threatening to cut their budget. So, of course, you know, when you threaten someone's livelihood and their kid's college fund, they're not going to like you. Yeah, they're not so, going to be in love with you. you know, BBC is not totally straight. They get a little sensationalized. So there's just no straight news. Those were the last bastions who we lost. And um, that's why I think that documentary filmmakers, at least long form video, can fill in this gap, even if it's just on YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I don't if if we keep churning out stuff like making a murderer, it's not going to happen. We're, we're going to lose all, all credibility. I'm wondering, like, from your perspective, just thinking about, like, you grew up in the Midwest, right? You grew up, you know, you, you grew up in Cleveland. Yeah, you grew up in Cleveland. Are you, and you were adopted, as I recall. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know it hasn't been, it hasn't been completed yet, but your original documentary, you know, when you, when you first sort of uh, began pursuing this, it was about your adoptive parents. And I was just thinking to myself, it was like that pursuit to find them. And I hope it comes out one day. <laughs> I hope it does. I'm I just waiting. have to get my brother to sit for an interview and I'll be good. <laughs> hey, brother, you hear us? <laughs> well, <You know>. <laughs> but I, I wonder whether like something about where you grew up, how you grew up, your life experiences focused you, I guess, less so on documentary, but so much on truth. It seems like... Here's the funny thing. Important. Okay, I am i didn't find this out until I was 30. I was the weird kid in school, and I never knew why. I was just, like, strange. I just, like, I just had social awkwardness. I had all kinds of stuff. And I also, like, got beat up once... And then went on some psycho journey to become a monster and went to the gym and became like the 16th strongest person in the world. By the time I was 20, I bench pressed 545 pounds without steroids. Like I just, I was just strange. I just like went on missions and I didn't know what autism was. And I'm a, I, I, I've been diagnosed as a high functioning autistic, what used to be called Asperger's. Asperger's. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm on a spectrum hmm. and my, I consider Asperger's or autism a superpower. So you had that hyper focus, that ability to unbelievable hyper focus. I also I also had this naivety of not knowing I shouldn't do something. Right, well, right. It's uh, the upside of not being able to pick up on the social cues. Yeah, yeah. I I, I cannot pick up on uh, on context 
clues, cues at all and, uh, and social, social cues. And um, so my superpower is never going along with a group. I'll tell you a story. I went to uh, my church. I was in kind of a hippie church when I was a kid. And they became part of what's called the Jesus movement. And the Jesus movement was a merger. It was a non-Christian merger of the hippie movement and uh, Christianity. So oh, it was wow. like this, it was like this horrible stepchild. Uh, and it was not real Christianity. And I went to this conference. It was like Woodstock. I think it was in Eastern Pennsylvania. And I and I'm there, I'm 14, sleeping in a tent, and we're all having fun, listening to music and listening to whatever sermons from like really funny guys and entertaining people. And and then the night they're like, we're going to do the sinner's prayer. And um, and they would, everybody would say the sinner's prayer, and then they'd be like, oh, my God, I'm being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I said, oh, do you feel it? Do you feel it? And, you know, it got to me, and I did it, and I was like, I don't feel anything. And they're like, oh, you're. Well, do it again. Are you, you know, sure? <laughs> you're, you're blocking. You're blocking. You're there's something wrong with your heart, you know. And I was and like, you why? didn't feel that desire to conform. Well, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't go along with groupthink. Right. I didn't go along with hysteria. Right. And and I that's and it's it's very much addressed in the movie American Gospel, which is not. I mean, I produced it and raised the money for it, but it's very much Brandon Kimber's project. But but. You know, I did come out of a bad church. That's why I could relate. And I, I looked at everybody there. I go, why do I have to have a buzz? Where in the Bible does it say I need to have a buzz? Mm-hmm. It just walked away from me. You mean there's chills and that? Yeah, I'm, I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to sit there and start shaking, or you know, be drunk in the spirit, or whatever it was. So I realized then I was like, you know what? I'm weird, but I'm glad I don't like fall in line mm. like a sheep. And that's that's what I consider like one of the blessings of being a high functioning autistic. Oh, that's interesting. And you you didn't get diagnosed until thirties. Your thirties. Wow. Mm. Wow. I was selling educational software, and I went to a school that specialized in Aspergers, and I showed them our you know software that prepared kids for the proficiency tests in Ohio. And he goes, "Yeah, we specialize in Aspergers." I go, "Can I ask you what's Aspergers?" He goes, "Can I? Can I?" say something and I hope I don't upset you. And I was sure he goes, you have pretty much every symptom. Oh, wow. And it was a really crazy what, moment. I was what like, did he see in that? What did he uh, see in that that I, I blurt and cut people off. Um, I, uh, you know, I've got some like ticks sometimes. I, uh, I have a lack of situational awareness sometimes. You know, I, I'm I'm a flawed person, but I, I'm okay with the flaws. I'm now I'm smart enough to know how dumb I am, and that's self awareness is important. Situational awareness is important. You can really master this when you get when you're 58 years old. Right. You know, you just have to know your weaknesses and and you know have some personal insight. Well, and but, I think that it's the hardest thing for you know for a lot of people who have Asperger's or autism. It it almost feels like you're living on the outside of the party that's happening that everybody else is in. And there's this Mm -hmm. great sense of relief that comes where you realize it's not you that's broken. It's just that you're different. A hundred percent. I had the worst FOMO, like fear of missing out. Kids would go to parties. I would not be invited. 
I'd be sitting at home like, man, I'm such a loser. What's wrong with me? And and so that, all that now I know is part of part of being on the spectrum. And I was annoying. I was annoying as hell. Uh, of course, I wasn't invited. I, I was so blunt. You know, I was like, wow, your sister's really fat. You know, what an asshole to say something like that. But like, but you weren't was, really being an asshole for you. You well, were just stating a fact. I was hurting. For, I was hurting people. I yeah, was hurt. that's the way it felt for other people, but that was right. not your intent. Right, but it, I shouldn't have done it. But I should have. Now I wouldn't do it. You yeah. know. Well, I think that was just as part of it, being really direct. Again, it's a superpower. Well, yeah. and th- it, that's it, right? Like you have to when when you're struggling with something like that, you have to learn sort of like the mechanics of empathy and other things. By the, like by the way, the person I said that to punched me in the face. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. For you, did you, like, in that moment, did you realize, like, wait a second? Like, yeah, I was like, I did it again. I did it again. Uh, and so yep. you beat yourself up. May, oh, beat the but, shit out of myself. Sorry, I, I don't usually swear during interviews. I'm sorry. No worries. That means you're relaxed, so... <laughs> But, but I, I wonder, like, you know, you said that it's your superpower in a weird way, you know, you're sort of taking on an industry, you're doing something that's unpopular, you're doing something that could, in theory, harm your career, your earning power, whether you get invited to a bunch of different parties, you know, like that little kid who wasn't getting invited, like you're, you're doing something that runs the risk of all those same things. But it's almost like the Asperger's gives you the strength and the power to take on sacred cows. I do think it helps. Yes. I, I, I'm baffled by the self-preservation instinct of people in Hollywood. And it's probably smart when you're working for other people. I've never really worked for other people. I've always worked for me. So, And it might be an extreme in Hollywood, if that makes sense, based on the type of personalities you get there care about recognition, care about money, care about power in a way that mm-hmm. maybe even outside of the norms. If that yep. makes sense. And it, it, it makes you an interesting character in the character in the, the story of, of, of Hollywood. <laughs> I am. Um, I wonder for you, like as you're walking down that road and you're deciding to do this and you're getting all this pushback, did you have any fear for your no, naive. let me tell you how, how much my autism affected me. I thought Netflix would buy this. I thought they'd make it season three. That's why we our aesthetics are very similar to Making a Murder. I thought, well, we got to kind of keep this on, on brand a little bit in case they want it. And then my agent just laughed at me. He said, what's wrong with you? I said, well, I'm autistic. And he goes, okay. He goes, they're never going to buy this. I go, I don't know. They've owned up to... They've owned up to stuff in the past, and they've also like taken on tough narratives in the past. And they, like, think about the Chappelle situation. They yeah, fixed they, they fixed that situation, and they didn't even do anything wrong. They didn't do anything wrong, mm-hmm. but Chappelle was pissed, and they they went and fixed it. So, like, I just thought I naively thought, well, if they're that into their algorithm, maybe they want ten more hours of this, and they'll own up to their mistake. And you know, my agents just. Laugh me Looked out of the you room. like you had six. Yeah, they're like, right. oh, you're, you're just not in reality. <laughs> um, <clears throat> that's the reason it kind of kind of looks a little bit like making a murder. We had to keep it kind of on the brand, but 
they look by by telling a false story they just teed this up for us and somebody had to do it and i'm glad we did yeah in a weird way like your life experience and and who you are and all the things that make you are ended up being like a blessing for you in this situation walk me through like from your perspective like thinking about it as a documentarian what what story does convicting a murderer tell i i i'd like to think people will have differing opinions of what the story is for me it's it's about truth in in filmmaking and storytelling it's about how you can be manipulated it's about the victim in this case more than anything and she was lost in all of this and i feel horrible for her family and i guarantee this is hurting them again and i hate that it is but we've got to fix the narrative and you know these people who support stephen avery said horrible things about this family irrational horrible things i mean celebrities said horrible things alex baldwin alec baldwin said horrible things about the family and it's got to be it had to be fixed so i'm i I feel terrible that we're tearing this scab off again but hopefully this is the final healing for them and i think that uh people are going to come away much more informed i don't think we're going to change too many minds in the subset of stephen avery fans and supporters I do think that the 100 million people who probably watch Making a Murder, a lot of them are going to learn that they were duped. And I think that they're going to change their opinion. And I think they're at least going to do their own research if they watch a docuseries. And, I, and one of the people in our docuseries said, do your own research, even on this one, because maybe we got things wrong. And you that's know, true. One of the really interesting things to me about watching what I've seen of, and I'm four episodes in, I think, to convict the murder and probably tomorrow will be five. Yeah, tomorrow's number five. Yep. Five, yeah. One of the surprising thing to me, you know, and you mentioned the victim, Teresa Holbuck, whether Stephen Avery's guilty or not, it's very clear from his family and other people that there were many other victims. Like I had never heard the full story of what happened with his cousin who he drove off the road while like making of a murderer didn't have the fact that, you know, her, her child was in the car and that he essentially was uh, threatening to kidnap her. didn't have all those details. I don't think they told anybody that six years or the 18 years was for that crime. Yeah. And, and then even worse for me and even more shocking for me was finding uh, out, you know, and this is the allegation about, his cousin and having a sexual relationship with his I, almost niece. underage cousin. His niece. She niece, was underage. She was underage. Yeah, underage niece. And, you know, I as I scrolled through... He I didn't have a relationship with her. He raped her. Yeah, because yeah. that's that's all... And, and he split he split her knees apart with his elbows, so you knew what he was doing there, if you fill in the blanks with your imagination. Then he followed up with hurting her. Right. Oh, he raped her. Right. And when I, every time I see the picture of her face, it just looks so young and innocent. And I can only imagine, you know, and, and, and the thought to me that a documentarian came before you and 
may have come across these things and didn't tell them. Like you mentioned, like the idea that it, it wasn't fair to Teresa Hallback's family, but it's almost not fair to the the people who were victimized in Stephen Avery's family. And so many of those, the, the Avery family members are in your docu- documentary, and I can't tell where they stand yet. Oh, you're going to see soon. But it doesn't seem like they're... Uh, there, it doesn't seem like they have a lot of doubt. Yeah, just uh, give it another episode or two. Uh, believe me, you're gonna you're gonna know how they stand. You're gonna yeah. know how fiance stood too. Wow, wow. So in this, we're getting a we're getting a story. But one of the interesting things too that I found out or found about it is you have not just you know you're you you have Stephen Avery supporters on there. You have people mm-hmm. who have... We invited everybody. Yeah, people who have switched them have the guts to do it. Yeah, but but you don't do the typical thing that sometimes people do when there's a point of view, but like, you know, play the creepy music after, as, no, as they're talking, no, no. or we, we, undermine we, them. Or... <clears throat> no, we treated them with respect, and we, we're glad. We need push-pull in a story. So... W- we're glad they they had the backbone to 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 confront uh, the prosecutor and debate him and to, to tell us their point of view. But I will tell you that uh, you're going to be shocked by what happens later in the series. Yeah, I, I think at the end of episode four, there was sort of a preview that was hinting at one of the Stephen Avery supporters sits down with the actual prosecutor for that- hours oh, and, wow. and screaming debate. It was wow. awesome. So this is going to come out after that airs. Do you tell me the story of what happens there? (laughs) Yeah, well, it's going to be in episode five, a lot of some of it, but it's throughout the rest of the episodes of debate. Wow, wow! So it goes back, goes back and forth. So for you, like when you're, you know, you mentioned that there are going to be some people who never sort of buy into buy into the story. There are going to be some people who feel are going to walk out feeling like they're duped and they're going to be an assortment of other people who have all sorts of emotions. But like when it comes to the victim's family and to Teresa Holbach's family, what do you, what do you hope it gives them? I hope that, um, I hope that people understand how awful certain people were to the family. And I hope people have some empathy for the family and, um, I I hope I don't want to overuse a, a word, you know, the word closure. Mm-hmm. I'm a Christian. I believe that Teresa Hallbach right now is bathed in God's love, and they'll see her eventually. But I didn't want her memory besmirched because people people write things like she's in South America on the beach right now while Cleveland while Stephen Avery rots in prison. Are you serious? Like how sick do you have to be to write that? You mean there are people who believe that she isn't dead at all? Many people. Wow. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Yep, they're in our film, saying it. Wow. And her body was found. Well, right her there. DNA was yeah, confirmed. It was left. Yeah. Because it was, it was in a burn. One in uh, a million people, or one in, you know, so they're, they're one in, I don't know, 100 million. There, there could be 30 people on the earth with that DNA. Like, what's, what are the odds? Right. They found a match. Come on. 
Right, right. In a burn pit. Let's note that part too. Right. The um, for me, I I'm wondering what happens. What do we lose if documentaries aren't able to tell a you never capture the whole truth because you can't put everything in there, but a a more honest truth. What do we lose? We lose the opportunity for, for to fill in the gaps. And then there's no straight news. That's what I see. And that's what I'm really worried about. Documentary, the first documentary, the one they show you in film school, is called Nanook of the North. And it's a case study in how to make a documentary. And guess what, Jason? It was fake. It was 100% really? fake. Oh, wow. And we have an expert named Dr. Patricia Aufterheide from American University, right by you, who comes in. She's the mother of documentary film. She's, she's the, the queen of documentary film. And she says, um, the history of documentary filmmaking is fraught with lopsided storytelling because there's always it's always a construct. So you have a responsibility to tell the truth. We have to tell the truth when we tell these stories. And Making a Murderer did not, and they knew they weren't. It was like self-preservation. That's that's what kills me. Yeah, that you get down the road. Have you gotten any feedback or had any interaction with uh, filmmakers themselves? No. I just hear from someone who's friends with them, um, but I don't know if he tells them he talks to me. I don't know. Right. Um, no, they were in the they were embroiled in the lawsuit, which they won. I'm going to tell you right now that Netflix and the filmmakers won their their uh, defamation lawsuit because there's a very high standard. There was and, a police um, officer, right? And it was to... Andrew Colburn right. and um, Colburn versus Netflix et al. And he lost. And you know what? I'm, I'm glad there's a high standard. I, I like the man a lot. I like him a lot. But there, I'm glad there's a high standard. I don't think because I don't want documentaries being slapped all the time by people who don't like what they say. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the judge was wrong, but whatever. It is what it is. Yeah, so, it's very difficult in the U.S. to... Well, you have to show intent or reckless recklessness, reckless disregard, or knowing yeah. that it was a lie. Sure. And if it's a public official, you have to show that it was actual malice that you truly yeah. did it at. That's a public figure, yeah. Yep. yeah, yep. So, yeah, that's and so, and he was a public figure, so but his life was destroyed. I mean, his, his daughters had to change their names, really, their last um, names in college, yeah. They came up with. AKAs, if I remember correctly, yeah. Is this the police officer who was accused of calling in his calling in the license plate number? Yes, and he was accused car. of being one of the guys who planted the key. Yep. Mm, and that was the key that was found in Stephen Avery's trailer. Yeah, a key that was not needed to prosecute Stephen Avery. He still would have been found guilty without that key. We can't explain the key. So I'll tell you that right now. If anybody thinks there's going to be some miraculous explanation of how that key got there, we can't explain it. You know, the, the uh, law enforcement officer said the uh, searches before that search were not that detailed. They specifically said, look for handcuffs. They sent them back, said, look for guns. That particular search, they said, look through the pornography, which was in that in that cabinet. In a drawer, so, right? Or, yeah. You no, know, the, ca- the, the key may have popped out of the back or the key may have been planted. I don't know. But it, 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 it's, it's probably not that relevant in him being 
having been found guilty. I would have loved to have interviewed jurors, but we, we weren't able to do that. So mm. I would have loved to have known if they would have found him guilty without that key. Key, right, 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 right. And it's, um, it's interesting that, uh, you know, and it just sort of goes back to your point that, you know, you're willing to admit that one of the, you know, key pieces that Avery supporters use that you can't disprove that argument that you're open to the possibility. And, yeah. I'm, just, I'm yeah. clinical. I'm yeah. really pretty, pretty clinical. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of that relentless pursuit of the truth. You remind me of an old newspaper man, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> we'll put the little hat and put the little press. Gum, gum guy with the, uh, with the overcoat on. Right, 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 right. The, um, so I, you know, like as we wrap up, I just wanted to give you a chance to just share anything that you think is really important. I think it's fascinating and I appreciate you being so open about your life experience and your background and, you know, <laughs> the upsides and downsides of something like Asperger's and in the story. And I appreciate you being so honest about it, but like, if you, what would you want people to even beyond the documentary when you're thinking about society? What, what, what do you sort of hope for? What do you hope for? I hope that people stop adhering to bumper sticker logic and understand that there is no boogeyman. There isn't mm. always a conspiracy. There isn't George Soros is not controlling the left. Nobody's controlling the right. There are people with certain points of view because of their life experience. We need to get together. I think though it's flawed, we are the greatest country in the world and we can't blow it up. And I think that uh, people don't need to understand that and stop listening to their college professors and start talking to each other. Mm. That's, that's important to me. And I hope they do. I think we're all um, on both sides a little bit. And um, you know, there, I have, some liberal views, a bunch of conservative views. And I, I, I think that uh, a lot of people who think they're liberal, if they took a plank test, <laughs> What's a plank questions, test? well, I'm just <laughs> saying, if like, you know, do you oh. believe this is right or wrong? Right, right. Well, I believe that, that there would be more conservative than they are liberal. I really, I really do, but they're not, they would be horrified by that result. <laughs> and um, so just, just talk to each other. And uh, well, it's like the point let's, let's work this out. Don't let don't let social media companies turn us into enemies and boogeymen. Yeah, it's like the point that you were making before. Like we're often headed to the same place. I think ninety percent of us want to do good in the world. Like I think of things like you know social welfare or something else like that, or opposition to it. You know that idea of like self reliance. I, I don't think we often think that like at the end of both of those roads are helping people. We're all trying to do the same thing. And if we can work together as a community, as brothers and sisters, then you have a better chance at coming up with a solution that will really work. You can lose the flaws of both sides. Right. And I think that's a, that's a powerful idea and I appreciate you coming on and 
good luck with the movie and the next project. What? And yeah, by the way, Jason, I'm I'm also a second chance guy. <laughs> is that why you're on this podcast right yes, now? Yes, it is why I'm on this podcast because I think I'm a second chance guy. Um, you've owned up to everything, right? Yeah. So yeah. you know what? You, you you couldn't have gotten there without being very talented. And I'm glad you have a podcast. I'm glad you're making a living. And uh, I, I'm I believe in grace, mm-hmm. and I think that uh, it's very very important that uh, that you get a second chance as well. Because no, there's no one in this world who hasn't screwed up. So, <laughs> it's interesting you say all that because, um, you know, when I asked uh, m- my friend for the contact information to sign you up and I sent the email, the first thing I worried about was, you know, he's a journalist and a documentarian. Is he going to want to even have a conversation with me? So I appreciate that. Oh, I'm serious. Yeah. I'm. Uh, I, I just. I'm. 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 I'm not perfect, and uh, you know, you. I have. A, there are a lot of people in my life who have messed up, and uh, they have incredible talent, and uh, I kind of get them on the cheap. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do. I know exactly what you. Yeah. Mean. So so they're they're grateful to me, and I'm like, well, you know. You're slightly damaged goods, and it, it worked out for me too. And uh, but uh, you're very good at what you do. So I'm totally damaged goods, and I think that actually made the best things about me. But that's the silver lining, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again, man. And hopefully, this won't be our last conversation. So, <laughs> yeah, sure, anytime. This is Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook. We'll see you all again next week.